Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. This morning we're in John 20, which Cindy read again, rendering my sermon useless. We could just listen to you and go home. It's so beautiful. But John 20, verses 19 through 23 is where we are if you want to follow along. This is Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance. It's the same night, the night after his resurrection, the same day of his resurrection. So he comes to the disciples, they're, they're locked in a room, afraid for their lives, and says to them, as the Father sends me, so I am sending you. And here is, as I call it, the 2 a.m. test. If my wife elbows me in the middle of the night, says, what's your sermon about? <laughs> you, this is it. You have been sent, just like Jesus, with peace, with power, and with good news. You have been sent, just like Jesus, with peace, with power, and with good news. But let's begin with the basic question, what does it mean to be sent in the first place? And you're finding yourself thinking, perhaps, I hope, I hope he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean to say not evangelism, right? <laughs> Christian evangelism. We might simply define it as sharing your faith in Jesus. But it's anything but simple when it comes to, to feelings about evangelism or actually doing evangelism. A recent Barna survey says that 47% of millennials, so almost half, of all millennial Christians agree with the following statement. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. So here's why. Here's three reasons that the E word has such baggage for us, and especially for the younger generations. Well, first of all, abuses. I hope none of you have ever experienced a so-called hell house. Anyone growing up? Okay, well, a hell house is a, a supposedly sanctified version of a haunted house. And this was kind of popular in the 80s and 90s. Um, it was meant to scare people into loving Jesus. So you'd go through these rooms filled with like blood and horror and terrible things. At the end, they'd be like, trust Jesus and you won't have to go through that. Um, yeah, not good. Evangelism has often been reduced to just to gimmicks, to, to well-meaning but ultimately misguided gimmicks. Perhaps you were exposed to, to harsh or insensitive or coercive or argumentative or just high-pressure, unnatural evangelism. Perhaps the, the E-word conjures up for you condemnatory street preachers or, or high-rolling televangelists. Abuses. Well, second of all, maybe there's some baggage because of relationships. The average boomer grew up with one friend of a different faith, according to studies. But today, the average millennial or younger has four friends of another faith. And we love these non-Christian friends. We, we don't want to offend them, and we don't want to risk losing relationship with messy conversations about religion, and so we just don't. Well, third, maybe relativism. Relativism is the water we all swim in. It sounds like this, especially for millennials. Who am I to tell you that you're wrong? If, if you're of another faith, how is what I believe any more valid than what you believe? You have your truth, I have mine. Let's leave it at that. And for these reasons and more, it's, it's quite understandable that, that our instincts may be to, to downplay, to suppress, or all out ignore that Jesus does send his disciples out to share the good news. And he does. Now, in truth, everyone is an, is an evangelist. I'm borrowing a bit from the, um, a recent Love Thy Neighborhood podcast on the subject. And it starts with this premise. You are all evangelists. And the only question is, for who or for what? So, for example, a person just so loves Apple products, they're said to be an Apple evangelist. 
A friendly stranger on an airplane shows you a picture of their new golden doodle puppy. Yeah, it doesn't shed. It's, it's so smart. It never barks. You should really consider getting one. You binge watch The Last of Us, and you just you can't stop talking about it with everyone. A person so loves a specific restaurant or, or politician or, or a cause that they become evangelists, preaching the good news via Instagram or yard signs or paraphernalia. We are all evangelists. And to be sent by Jesus is an invitation to channel and direct these natural tendencies in a specific way, to be a bringer of good news to the world. Well, how? Evangelism can take many different forms. Here's four, at least. Proclamation, apologetics, conversations, and embodiment. So first, proclamation. The gospel is declared, kind of like I am now, to, a, to an audience. Or you could think of Billy Graham. There's apologetics. So one of my favorite apologists, Rebecca McLaughlin, holds a PhD from Cambridge, and she writes books explaining the Christian worldview and defending it. Or third, conversations. The gospel is just discussed, probably over coffee in relationship. And then fourth, embodiment. The gospel is displayed through actions. So a church like ours puts on a, a foot care clinic and a homeless ministry, or, or you shovel the snow of an elderly neighbor. And when someone asks you why, the answer is simple to reflect the love of Jesus, whom I follow. Which one of these did God send Jesus to do? What do you think? As we said in the first service, D, all of them, all of the above. He proclaimed, he defended, he conversed, and he embodied the gospel. Now, here's a bit of a trickier question. Are you called to do all of them? Yes and no, I think. The church certainly is, but we are one body with many parts, are we not? We are all called to embody the gospel, yes, but not all of us have been given a gift of, of proclamation or a platform. Not, of all us are, not all of us are gifted in the same ways to defend the gospel. Or, you know, for me, um, I'm more comfortable in this setting than I am in a conversation with someone because I'm kind of introverted and kind of awkward. So we've all been gifted a little differently. In all these ways and more, though, Christ has sent his church as a body to share the good news. Because God is, says Alan Hirsch, a missionary God. Just as the Father has sent me, so send I you, says Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a sent one. In other words, evangelism isn't something we do and then check off our list. I did evangelism today. It's our identity to be sent by our missionary God. There is no such thing as an unsent Christian who does not participate in the eternal purposes of God in and through the church to renew all things with Jesus in the Spirit. That's who you are. That's your mission, because it's our Father's mission. Okay, so what does it look like? How can we be sent while, while hopefully avoiding the, the abuses and the gimmicks and the, and the coercion and, frankly, the, the cringy forms of evangelism that so often it takes? Well, in this little scene behind uh, locked doors in the upper room, Jesus sends his disciples with three things that the Father had sent him with, with peace and with power and with good news. So beginning in John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked. Why? For fear of the Jews. Christ had been crucified three days earlier, and they hoped to avoid the same fate for being his followers. So they're terrified. And Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You've been sent just like Jesus, with peace. The disciples were afraid, of course, and they had good reason to be. And Jesus comes to them, and the first words he speaks after his resurrection, shalom, peace. 
He gives them peace so that they may be evangelists for peace. They can't share what they don't have, and neither can we. The Hebrew concept of peace, shalom, is not just the absence of conflict. It's a deep blessedness. It's an, it's an unqualified well-being. So two times Jesus says it, peace be with you, shalom be upon you, deep blessedness and well-being fill you up to overflowing. Now I thought about this. As someone, me, who is prone to generalized anxiety and who has benefited from counseling and from anti-anxiety medication, it's, it's really easy to hear this as a chastisement rather than a blessing. Like, like be at peace, <laughs> you know? Feel better. Um, but it's not. It's, it's a blessing. The disciples are, are rightfully terrified. They, they may be found and crucified, but he doesn't rebuke their fear. And likewise, sometimes we have good reason to be anxious and afraid, don't we? Indeed, the disciples would also be right to be ashamed. Think about the last time they saw Jesus. They had abandoned him in the garden, fleeing for their lives in fear. Sometimes we have good reason to be ashamed, don't we? But Jesus does not wait for them to find the courage in themselves to come out of the locker room, to track him down and say a good proper apology for their cowardice. No, he enters into their midst and he speaks a blessing. And it's dripping with grace, given this context. Peace to you. He shows, the, he shows them his, his wounds, these marks of chastisement that meant our forgiveness, our peace upon his hands and his side. And so the anxiety and the fear you and I often feel, it's often justified. The world can be a tragic and fearful place. The solution, though, is not the elimination of all threats. The disciples went on to die for their faith, did they not? I think so often our tendency is to say, if I can just like get comfortable and safe and eliminate all the threats around me, that's good. It's good to pursue safety. You know, that's, that's great. But, but ultimately, the solution is the peace-bringing presence of the risen Christ coming in the midst of fear. And so, yes, pursue counseling and, and medication if necessary, and, and all these things can be part of God's healing, but we must start here as Christians. We must encounter the risen Christ and hear him speak to us, peace. Eight years ago, I was, I was with YWAM in rural Nepal. And after sharing the gospel through a skit and a translator, several people came forward for prayer. One man asked me to pray for him. And as soon as I put my hand on his shoulder, he began to shake before I had said anything. I don't, I, I don't know what I prayed. I remember feeling awkward and not full of faith at all. I was unsure of how to pray or what to say, but I, I tried. And afterwards, I asked him through our translator, why were you shaking? And, and he said through the translator, I don't know, but I have never felt such peace in my entire life. I remember being just so struck by those words. So I'd like to pray the same for you. I don't really know what else to do. Peace isn't something you can just prescribe necessarily. Ultimately, it comes from receiving this word of peace from Christ in the midst of our fear and anxiety. So I'm going to pray. And this is um, from the Book of Common Prayer. It's, it's the 82nd prayer in the, in the prayer book for quiet confidence. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be our strength. By the might of your Spirit, lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
So that's a prayer. Again, 80-second prayer and the occasional prayers. You could pray it every day this week. It could be a good step for you. And you've been sent, just like Jesus, with peace. Do you know anyone who needs peace? Peace is not a gimmick. Peace is not coercion. Peace is beautiful. So do what I, maybe, you could, maybe you could also pray this for yourself, and maybe you could ask a friend or, or a coworker or a neighbor who you know needs some peace, do you mind if I pray this blessing over you? We've been sent with peace, but we've also been sent with, with power. John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. Again, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And when he said this, what did he do? He breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He's been sent just like Jesus with power. Now here are the key words, Jesus breathed on them. Now the context here is, is clarifying. The Genesis story of creation begins with what words? In the beginning. And John's gospel begins with what words? In the beginning. John is retelling a creation story. How does God create Adam in his image? He breathes the breath of life into him. What is Jesus doing here but breathing again the breath of life into man? John is being very clear. Through Christ, God has begun a new creation project in you now by his spirit. The power of Jesus' breath, his spirit, it makes us alive like, like spring after winter. Praise God for spring. With this new birth comes new peace, yes, and it comes new power, new life, new affections. The scene from Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe captures it so beautifully. Where Aslan, the, the Christ figure, he encounters all these creatures that the white witch has turned to stone. What an extraordinary place, cried Lucy. All these stone animals and people too, it's like a, it's like a museum. Hush, said Susan, Aslan's doing something. He was indeed. Aslan had bounded up to a stone lion and breathed upon him. And at that moment, Lucy said, oh, Susan, look, look at the lion. I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper. For a second, nothing seems to happen, and then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second, after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion looked just the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run. It began to flame licks of flame all over a bit of paper. And then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane, and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. And then he opened his great mouth, warm and living, and he gave a prodigious yawn. And now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them, and he scratched himself. And then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking around him, whimpering with delight, and jumping up to lick his face. Everywhere now, Statutes were coming to life. The courtyard no longer looked like a museum, but a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing around him until he was almost hidden in the crowd. And instead of all the deadly white, the courtyard was now a blaze of colors. And instead of the deadly silence, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings and laughter. The same God that breathed creation into existence, the same Son that breathed new life into his disciples, the same power that conquered the grave, this same breath that turned stone hearts into flesh, this has been breathed upon you. And some of you here, I, I'm sent like Jesus, and you feel too weak, and you feel too inadequate, and you feel too busy, or you just too feel too blah. You are that. But the spirit in you is anything but weak. 
So don't refuse to let him work through you because of your weakness. His power is made perfect in weakness. If you've trusted Jesus and repented of your sins and been baptized into Christ, you have the spirit of the living God. The same spirit that King David had when he slew Goliath. The same spirit that descended and fell on Jesus at his baptism. The same spirit that mobilized the church at Pentecost. The same spirit that conquered the grave has been given to you. I have a little stone in my office that says, The spirit in David, the spirit in Christ, the spirit in me. His creative breath flows into you, bringing new life and vitality like spring after winter. Slowly, perhaps. I love that the image, Lewis, it happens fairly quickly, but the progression is good. If we could just spread that out over a lifetime, it's like we start to come alive here, but it takes a little time to come alive here, and it's, it's the work of a lifetime. But it's begun in you. You are being remade into a new creation. And you've been sent, like Jesus, to share this vitalizing, powerful, creative breath with a dying and decaying world that desperately needs it. And so again, I just want to pray. This blessing comes from Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and listen to these words, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, we need that. Would you fill us, Lord? Fill us with your life. Third and finally, we've been sent, just like Jesus, with, with good news. We read in verse 23 these kind of confusing words. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from many, it is withheld. How is that good news? <laughs> this verse seems to be a rather cryptic way of saying what is elsewhere said a little more clearly. Luke 10, 16. The person who hears you hears me. The person who rejects you rejects me. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. But the person who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So it's kind of like this. As a parent, if you reject my kids, you're kind of rejecting me. Because I feel rejected. The disciples of Christ, we are God's children. And so by virtue of this, we represent him. We are his ambassadors. And we sent ones. We, we come with the message of good news given to us by our Father. And how people respond then to us and our message is wound up very closely with how they respond to God and his good news. So the good news we announce and allow people to accept or reject is the forgiveness of sins. Kurt Thompson writes extensively on shame. The Soul of Shame is a book I, I highly recommend. He writes on shame and its effects and the pursuit of healing. And his extensive expertise has led him to say this about shame. Evil is actively and intentionally using shame to disintegrate the universe and to devour it. Strong words. Shame is soul-destroying. It is relationship-destroying, everything-destroying. And one of its primary effects is that it leads to isolation and to depressive and addictive cycles. Many of us have been there. And yet, data tells us shame is also ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. Nearly everyone you meet is wrestling with regrets and with bad decisions and moments of, of real shame. So you are sent into the world with really, really, really good news. Yes, you are a sinner, but there is abundant forgiveness for you. And I love how Thompson goes on. He says that it's, it's actually very important for us to hear someone else acknowledge our sin. Neurobiologically, it does me harm if I confess to you something and you say, that's okay, no big deal. Oh, it's, it's fine. 
Because in confession, what I'm really looking for in your eyes, in your body language, in your voice, is for you to be able to say, you are right, Kurt, you were wrong to do that, and you're forgiven and loved, and I'm not leaving. And too often we just think we should just shrug it off. But the death of Christ allows us to take sin really seriously. Look at his wounds. We put them there. I heard a preacher once say that the cross means that Jesus would rather die than make a big deal of your sins. And I get what he was going for, but I think of it the opposite way. Look at his wounds. It was my sin that put him there. Our sins are such a big deal that Christ was crucified for them so that, yes, he could forgive you. And so we actually don't need to come to people and just say, yeah, I'm sorry I was wrong, and have them say, yeah, no big deal. We need to say, yes, you, like me, you're a sinner, and it's terrible. But I love you, and you're forgiven, and I'm not leaving. And that's what the church is meant to be. That's the community that we're meant to be. That's the message we're meant to embody together. Not to clean up and look nice and pretend we're fine. No, no, no. To be broken together and then to receive grace together. And then the resurrection Christ comes to his disciples who have sinned terribly against him and he shows them his wounds and he speaks this word of shalom, of peace, and he restores Peter. It's just dripping with grace. Do you know anyone who needs to know that not even their darkest secrets, not even their moments of, 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 of deepest shame can deter the love of God? That there is forgiveness of sins in Christ. And so I'll pray for a spirit of evangelism. This is the 20th prayer and occasional prayers. Almighty God, our Savior, you desire that none should perish, and you have taught us through your Son that there is great joy in heaven over every sinner who repents. Grant that our hearts may ache for a lost and broken world, and pour out your Holy Spirit. May your Holy Spirit work through our words and our deeds and our prayers, our proclamation, our conversations, our embodiment, our apologetics, May your Holy Spirit work through our words and deeds and prayers and that all of your redeemed may rejoice around your throne through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So you've been sent. You've been sent with God's peace, with God's power, with God's good news. There's a, there's a famous story of a one-legged school teacher from Scotland who came to J. Hudson Taylor, who's a, a famous missionary to China. And Taylor said, with only one leg, why do you think you should be going as a missionary? And he responded, I don't see those with two legs going. <laughs> and so he was accepted. God has sent you. This is your mission, if you choose to accept it, to be sent like Jesus. And you don't need to do it all yourself. You're part of a body that brings people before the Lord and baptizes them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Evangelism doesn't need to be coercive or gimmicky or, or awkward. You don't need to be the holiest or the smartest or the most sensitive. You don't even need two legs. You need God's peace and God's power and his good news. In other words, you need to encounter the risen Christ. Freely you have received, freely give. Lord, is there, is there someone in our life who maybe you're, you're making a way for us to share this good news, to share some peace, some shalom with, to share the good news of how you're restoring all things and that there's hope for death to be transformed to life, for someone who just needs to know that there's forgiveness of sins and that they're loved. Would you give us a burden to share? Bring them to mind and send us out to do the work you've given us to do. 
to sincerely, naturally, faithfully share you and your good news in word and in deed with our friends and neighbors. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.